Hey, it's so good to welcome you to Fields Church Online, and we are so pleased that you've tuned in for this message. No matter what's going on in your world right now, we pray that you come away feeling encouraged by this message. I just um, really thank you for Josh, and I thank you for um, all of the... Um, the work and uh, the study that he will have done over this over this uh, talk today. And um, yeah, I just really pray now that you would um, fill him with boldness and that you would just open our hearts that every single person here, we would see how we can apply this parable to our lives. What is it that speaks to each one of us? Um, God, we thank you for your wisdom through the Bible. Um, and yeah, we're just willing to listen now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Beth. Good morning, everyone. Really lovely to see you. This morning we are going to be looking at uh, two very short parables that Jesus talks about. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. So I've called this morning's talk Treasure Hunt. It's also one of the baby names we never got around to using. But um, (laughs) (laughs) took a while. Um, A few months before Nina and I got married, we were driving to her parents' house in Grunsborough, and it was a lovely, warm summer's day. We were in Nina's Renault Clio. The windows were down, breeze coming through, chatting away. Nina had her hand out of the window to feel the breeze. And after a few minutes, she brought her hand back inside the car, only to discover that the pearl on her antique engagement ring was no longer there. So we checked inside the car. Did it fall down in the footwell? No. There was only one place it could be, somewhere in the Suffolk countryside outside of the Renault Clio. So, you know, words were exchanged and conversations were had. We arrived at (laughs) Nina's parents' house, explained what had happened, and Nina's sister, Robin, said, I'll go and find it. Okay. She said, where did you drop it? And it's like one of those A-level physics questions, isn't it? If you're driving at 50 miles an hour for about four and a half minutes, over what distance might the pearl have been lost? But I just described to her the vague location where we realized it had gone missing, which was, I realized afterwards, generic Suffolk country lane, you know, narrow road, grass verge, hedge field. Kind of could have been anywhere. But she got in the car and she drove away. And we got a text message from Robin about four and a half minutes later with the two words, found it. It's like, what? She arrived back at Nina's parents' house like an absolute hero. And I said, what on earth happened? She said, well, I drove to roughly where you said. I got out the car, was just having a walk along the verge, saw something sparkling in the sunlight, picked it up, dusted off the mud. There's the pearl. She found it. She found it. An absolutely amazing story. I think it's the closest I've ever come to finding treasure like that. But Jesus tells us these two parables about people finding treasure. And they're found in Matthew chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, um, do join me in reading them. The words are also on the screen if you need them. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had and bought it. 
I love these parables, partly because they're so short, but despite being really short, they actually convey a really important message about what is really important in life. What is the true treasure in life? And people interpret these in, in a, a range of different ways, but the general consensus is that the people in the story, the man in the field and the merchant looking for the pearl, tend to represent us as people going through life, trying to work out what's important, what's not. And the treasure and the pearl represent the kingdom of God as shown through the person of Jesus. However people interpret these, the one thing most people generally agree on is that there's this pattern, there's this rhythm to these stories. There are two elements. Firstly, there's the element of discovery. This person finds the treasure. They find the pearl. And then secondly, there's this action. He doesn't just find the treasure in the field and go, oh, that's nice, and carry on. The merchant doesn't find the pearl and goes, oh, that's a lovely pearl, and carry on his day. There's an action. They go away, they sell everything that they own, and they buy it. And we're going to have a look at those two different aspects this morning. First, let's think about discovery. These two short stories that Jesus tells sound very, very similar, don't they? Someone finding something and then getting it. But actually, the discovery element of these two short parables are vastly different. Let's have another read and pay a bit closer attention, perhaps, to how the people discover what they find. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. I don't know about you, but I'm imagining someone walking through a field as a shortcut maybe on the way to where they were going, and they kind of trip, and they look down at the ground, and they find something, and they excavate a bit of soil, and they realize it's like the corner of a chest or a box, and they excavate a bit more soil. They're kind of pulling this box out. It's got rusty hinges on. They break the hinges off, open it up, and discover this treasure. It's a surprise. It interrupts whatever else was happening in their day. And we have some emotive language as well. We have this word joy that's mentioned in this parable, but not in the other one. This person's treasure comes as a surprise, and there's joy about it. In contrast, in the second story, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is slightly different. I imagine this merchant is someone who is very experienced, very knowledgeable, perhaps spends some time in the market trading with people, knows a bit about jewelry, someone who'd be on like antiques road trip, that kind of thing. And as he's going around looking at the different stools, he, he's looking at this collection of jewelry and looking at these pearls and realizes because of his knowledge and his wisdom and his experience, this pearl has great value. So he goes away and buys it. When I was reading these parables and thinking about these two different ways of discovery, the discovery by surprise and the discovery through searching, I couldn't help but think about the Christmas story, partly because I love talking about the Christmas story. But we have two different groups of people that find the treasure of Jesus in the nativity. Can you remember who these two different groups of people are? We have the shepherds and we have the wise men. Very, very similar to our two parables here. We have shepherds who were also in a field going about their day. 
and they have this surprise visit from these angels. They weren't expecting it. It was a surprise. It was an interruption. And what do the angels say? That they have come with great news that will bring great joy. We have this idea that there is this surprise followed by joy. And the other group of people, we have the wise men who found Jesus after following a star. The star was not hidden. It was literally in the sky. Just as I imagine this pearl was on display for all to see in the market. But the wise men knew that star was different. They knew that star had great value because of their wisdom and their knowledge and their experience of studying the night sky for many, many years. And after seeing that star, they made this quest and this search, a very long quest and search, and eventually found Jesus. Two different ways of discovering treasure, of discovering Jesus. The important thing is that both found him in the end through very different routes. I wonder how you've discovered Jesus, if you've discovered Jesus. I wonder whether it was from a miraculous surprise that we've been hearing about quite a lot over the past few weeks. I wonder whether you had some incredible spiritual, supernatural encounter in your life that led you to Jesus. Or I wonder whether you're like our other group of people where it was a really, really long quest and search. A few months ago, I was at a lecture um, from the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. I don't know if you ever heard him speak. He's so thoughtful and wise. He could read a shopping list, and I'd be like, wow. <laughs> and he was doing this lecture on science and faith, and it was about an hour long. No notes. And afterwards, they went to a time of question and answer. And there was this kind of deathly silence. And this, this older gentleman at the front, he put his hand up. They brought the microphone over to him, passed it to him. And he said, this is not so much a question, it's more of a comment. And I was like, oh, no one wants your comment. We've just had... But he said... <laughs> he said, my comment is this. He said, I've been going to church for 83 years. And he said, I just wanted to say to Rowan Williams, that it was after I read your book about Jesus last year that I discovered him and finally became a Christian. It's amazing, isn't it? I felt really bad for judging him when he said he was going to make a comment. He was allowed. So maybe you've discovered Jesus after a miraculous surprise. Maybe you've been searching on this quest for 82 years. But isn't it amazing to discover him? But that's only the first half, isn't it, discovering Jesus? Because after we discover the treasure, there's then an action. You don't just discover the treasure and leave it there. There's an action, there's a response. And in both instances, the man in the field and the merchant and region is in the market there is a realization that in order to get that treasure, they have to go and reprioritize everything else in their life. They have to go and sell everything that they own in order to get that treasure. It has to come first. This treasure can't be achieved as priority number two. It's not an optional extra. It's not bonus content. It's not an add-on. It's not some kind of upgrade package. This treasure, the kingdom of God, life with Jesus, every day with Jesus, has to be first. 
It has to be priority number one. And I think no matter how long we've been a Christian, that's a huge challenge, isn't it? Sometimes it's a daily challenge of waking up and saying, today, whatever happened yesterday, today, am I going to put God first? Am I going to put life with Jesus first today? It's a huge challenge. I don't underestimate that. But elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, it's telling us about these parables, but elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, he also reinforces this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. This is part of our church vision statement, isn't it? Seek first the kingdom of God. Above all else, life with Jesus. This is the ultimate treasure. Note that the pearl merchant, once he found that pearl, he didn't carry on searching. He didn't carry on looking for fine pearls. He was done. The search was done. He'd found it. He'd sold everything. He had no cash. That was it. He'd found the pearl. End of the search. That was what he had been looking for this whole time. And I think that's profound because since the dawn of time, philosophers and and theologians have been asking this question of what is this about? Why are we here? What are we searching for? What are we all looking for? And Jesus tells us in this parable, it's the kingdom of God is what we're looking for. But the Bible is full of stories of many people over thousands of years who have tried to find meaning and purpose in all sorts of things. And one of the books of the Bible that is one of my favorites, where we hear these questions being openly discussed, is the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've ever read it. The author is unknown, but it tells us um, at the start of the book that these are the words of a teacher, someone who's in the line of David, and someone who is a king in Jerusalem. So we get the impression from that this is someone we should probably trust. He's probably got some stories to tell. He's probably got some wisdom and experience. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to look at how they open in verse 2. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's a strong opening statement, isn't it? Um, it's not the kind of Bible verse you would read at a, a, a wedding or a, a christening. <laughs> Although I was speaking to one priest recently who was like, no, I would. This, um, this word meaningless is this Hebrew word havel. And it literally means kind of vapor, breath, mist. Can you imagine something that's kind of temporary? You can, you can see it and then it kind of dissipates and it disappears. Something that's temporary something that's fragile, something that's here for a moment. And while it sounds a bit depressing, if we're really honest, deep down, didn't, didn't we already know that life is a little bit like that? It's, it's a little bit temporary. It's here for a moment. And we sometimes have this realization when we do things like, if you've ever driven past a really serious car accident and you look and you think, gosh, I was just going about my normal routine, but that, that could have been me. When you're on the phone to the doctor and they've got those test results that you've been waiting for and they put you on hold and you are waiting. When you're watching the news and it's a breaking news of some natural disaster that's happened and you're watching these live images and we just have these moments in life sometimes where we realize we have all our plans, but this is all a bit more fragile than we 
really think that it is. It's all a bit more temporary than we've been told. What's interesting is that the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us how he's come to this conclusion. He hasn't just had a bad day. He's not just hungry. He hasn't just had an argument with a colleague in the office. They set out their rationale as to why they've come to this conclusion. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 16 onwards. Not 16, sorry. We're going to start at verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, vapor, a chasing after the wind. And from verse 16, I said to myself, look... I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. In other words, he's saying he's done all the study. He's read all the books. He's tried to get all the knowledge of what life is about and has come to the conclusion that it's all still fragile and temporary. That's his head knowledge. Let's have a look at his lifestyle. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 onwards. They built houses for themselves. They planted vineyards. They made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. They made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. They bought male and female slaves. They had other slaves who were born in their house. They owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before them. They amassed silver and gold. I mean, the list goes on. This person had more than anyone would ever put on a shopping list at that time. And yet we skip to verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. Yet, he says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, And what I had toiled and strived to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. In other words, he knew everything and he had everything and still came to the conclusion that it's all just a bit temporary and all but a vapor. Where is the true treasure that we can really rely on when everything else, like that vapor, dissipates? So when we read these parables in Matthew's gospel of these people finding this treasure, and when we read about their action of going away and selling absolutely everything that they own in order to get it, part of us might think, that's quite a big sacrifice to make, isn't it? To go and sell everything that you own to get that treasure. And maybe it is. But we also have this ancient Jewish wisdom from Ecclesiastes telling us that this person amassed more knowledge, wisdom, and possessions than anyone on earth would ever wish for, more physical and finance, uh, more physical possessions and financial possessions. And their only conclusion was it didn't really amount to much after all. So maybe going and reprioritizing everything else in our lives isn't actually as much of a sacrifice as it first appears to be. 
Jesus tells us through these parables that whatever we own, whatever we know, absolutely nothing compares to the treasure of the kingdom of God and life with him every day with Jesus. That is what deserves the number one place in our lives. And that's the answer to this question that theologians and philosophers have been asking ever since the dawn of time of what is the point in all of this? What does it all mean? Well, Jesus tells us the kingdom of God, this is what you've been searching for your entire life. I've got a couple of stories just to help us visualize what this might look like um, day to day. And I want to tell you a story about um, learning how to swim. I don't know what your experience was or is of, of learning how to swim, but as a child, my primary school had a little swimming pool. And every summer term, there would be, I was going to say teacher, there was going to be this parent volunteer that came in and tried to teach us how to swim. And she would try just, just mad methods of trying to get us how to swim. By the way, none of them were successful. The one that I remember, though, on a, a sunny Tuesday afternoon was called the oil spill method. Did anyone else learn to swim using the oil spill method? No, I thought not. <clears throat> she took a group of us affectionately known as the non-swimmers group. There were about six of us. And she lined us up on one side of the pool. And she said, what you're going to do is swim from this side of the pool to this side of the pool. I'm thinking we're literally called the non-swimmers group, like read the room. But she said, this is what you're going to do. And she said, you're going to swim underwater because there is an oil spill on top of the water. And she said, that oil spill is on fire. So she said, if any of you bring your head up above the surface of the water, you will burn and you will die. So she shouts, go, very aggressively, and people start to make their way across the pool. And my head is underwater, and all I could hear is the muffled sound of her shouting, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. I had assumed pointing at various children in my group who had dared to raise their head above the surface to, to gasp for air. It was just awful. It was an awful way to uh, attempt to learn how to swim. And part of me was thinking, is it possible to drown and burn at the same time? <laughs> But apparently in her world, it was. So when Nina and I had kids and we were thinking about getting them to learn how to swim, um, we didn't want them to have that kind of experience. We wanted them to have a, a proper experience. So we enrolled them on these very expensive kids swimming class lessons things. And I don't know if you've got any experience of these, but they basically cover your child from head to toe in kind of flotation devices, buoyancy aids, and they gradually take them off as they build more confidence. And um, there was one particular lesson where Reuben had obviously shown some kind of skill and, and confidence. And the teacher had removed all of his armbands, all of his pool noodles, all of his woggles, taken away the float, and it was just his little scrawny body clinging onto the side of the pool for dear life. And she said, Reuben, today we're going to swim. And she said, what I want you to do when I say go is to push yourself off the side of the pool as hard as you can and do doggy paddle as fast as you can. And she said, I want you to look at me and follow my voice. She said, are you ready? He said, yeah. She said, go. And he 
pushed himself off and instantly went under the water and disappeared for goodness knows how long and eventually emerged doing the most frantic doggy paddle I've ever seen. And the teachers were walking backwards going, come on, Reuben, come on, Rubes, come on, Ru, you can do it. And walked backwards and backwards until eventually on his own for the first time ever, he swam the entire width of the pool. No armbands, no pool noodles on his own, swam to the other side of the pool. And God doesn't usually speak to me through, you know, analogies in my kids' swimming lessons because normally I'm on Twitter. But on this particular occasion, <laughs> I was actually paying attention and I really felt like God saying, Josh, look, look at what is happening. Look at what is happening. Look at Reuben. He's swimming. And he has this surprise, he has this joy that has come from swimming. And he did it because firstly, he had to get rid of everything else. He had to get rid of all of those false buoyancy aids, those flotation devices, the armbands, the noodles, the floats. He had to get rid of them and physically put them on the side of the pool. And then what did he have to do? He had to look at the teacher. He had to follow the teacher's voice all the way. And was it easy? No. But did he have joy? Yes. And more importantly, was he doing what the swimming pool was designed for? The swimming pool is designed for swimming, and that's what he was doing. In contrast, I looked at some of the others in the lesson. I mean, they were happy. They were happy. They were kind of bobbling around filled to the brim with armbands, lying on floats. They were having a happy time, but not following the teacher, not doing what the pool was designed for. And I'd love for us to have a think about that as we respond this morning. Is it all right to have a little bit of music, Danny? Thank you. Is it all right if we stand As we think about these parables in Matthew's gospel of the hidden treasure and the pearl, we spoke about these two different elements of these stories. Firstly, there was the element of discovery. These people discovered the treasure. And we can discover Jesus. Perhaps you haven't yet discovered the treasure of everyday life with Jesus. Maybe you just really need to be surprised by him, like the man in the field. Maybe, like the merchant, you've been on some kind of quest, you've been on some kind of search your entire life, and you haven't yet discovered who Jesus is. And so, as, as I ask us all to close our eyes, as we think about this treasure and what is really important in life, if you know deep down that you haven't yet discovered the treasure of life with Jesus, and you would really like to this morning, could I invite you just to lift your hand up this morning? Just to raise your hand to say, yes, I'd like that treasure. I'd really like that today. Thank you. Pastor Richard, do you want to come and pray for... For our friends. 
Let's just keep our eyes closed for a moment. There's a verse in our Bibles that says, Life is like a vapor. And Josh mentioned that this morning without giving us the verse, but that's what he mentioned. Life comes like boiling a kettle, the steam comes. When you turn the kettle off, the steam goes and dissipates, it's no more. And that's a bit like our lives. And when we come to the end of our lives thinking about that, what do we think about? Do we ask the doctors on our deathbeds, bring my spreadsheets, I just want to see how much money I've got in the bank? I don't think people would do that. They want their family and their friends around. They want who's important around. And I believe, friend, today, if you're here and you want to respond to Jesus today, if anyone has put their hand up, I'd like to pray with you. Coming to church is really good. It's the thing we need to do to grow as Christians. But are we truly saved? Have we given our life to Jesus? Have we given all to find that great treasure, which is Christ? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, just respond by putting your hand up and say, that's me. But I want to know this Jesus. Anybody here this morning that would say, I want to know this Jesus, just raise your hand up and say, that's me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm just going to pray a prayer. And what I'd like to do is, if everybody could follow after me and just say this prayer after me. If you're happy to. If you're not happy to, that's fine. But let's just say this. Father, Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Please forgive me for my sins. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me, that you were buried, but on the third day you rose again. Lord Jesus, I give you my life today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we say, confess with our mouth that Jesus died and that he rose again, and we believe in our heart that that's true, that's when we become a, a Christian. What about the, you guys? I'm going to ask another question. For those of you who've tried church, you've been in church, you've been hurt by church, and church wasn't for you, but you're here today. Friend, I don't believe you're here by accident. And maybe you want to go give God a second chance. He'll always give you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And maybe you'd like to respond to that as well. Maybe your heart has grown cold to the things of God. You've taken your eyes off the true treasure of life, who is Jesus, and you're looking at other treasures in your life. And maybe you've come to the end of that and you say, I don't want that anymore. I want that true treasure again. If that's you, just put your hand up and say, that's me. I want to experience that true treasure again. That's great. Thank you, Father. I'm just going to hand back to Josh, and he's going to lead us. Thank you. Yes, uh, discovering Jesus is only half of the story. There's an action. There's a response. 
to put Jesus first and the kingdom of God first. I know that's the decision I need to make every single day. And if you'd like to join me in responding to put the kingdom of God first above all else, um, I'm just going to have my my hands out in front of me, palms um, facing up. If you'd like to do that, please join. God, we come before you with our our hands symbolically empty-handed that we've left everything else because we want to put you first. We want to seek your kingdom first. We know in a world where things are so temporary that the treasure of your kingdom is the only thing we can hold on to and be certain of. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Holy Spirit, please help us each day to make that conscious, intentional decision to put you above all else, whatever is competing for our headspace, whatever is coming up tomorrow and this week and the months and years ahead. Holy Spirit, help us to put you first, your kingdom first. We have an amazing prayer team at church. If you'd love to have Um, a couple of people continue to pray for you to put the kingdom of God first. We'd invite you to come up to the front and there will be people here that can pray with you to make that priority number one. Otherwise, we would absolutely love for you to stay for tea and coffee and refreshments at the back as we close our service. It's been great to share with you all this morning. God bless you all.